0: If you have your Bible, go ahead, and I hope you have your Bible, turn to the minor prophet Haggai. You have a handy table of contents if you don't know where Haggai is. So we're we're inching closer and closer to the finish line of this study through the minor prophets. I've really enjoyed it. I've never taught through these minor prophets before, um, and so I've learned a lot, and I hope you have as well. We only have two more after this week, Zechariah and Malachi. But today we're in Haggai. Haggai is one of the shorter books. Last week we are in Obadiah. It's just one chapter, it's 21 verses. That's great. Um, Haggai isn't much longer than that, just two chapters. And that's good because like last week, I think we'll be able to, over the course of our time together, read through most all of it and not really have to skip over big chunks of it uh, like we have some of the longer prophets. We're trying to cram it all in one day. But like we've done each week, uh, we're taking our lead from the Lord Jesus himself who um, taught us that everything in the Old Testament is about him and pointing forward to him. He told the disciple two different occasions in Luke 24, told his disciples on the road to Emmaus and in larger setting, that everything written about him in the Old Testament, he, the law, the, the prophets, the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he showed those two men on the road to Emmaus the things in the, in the prophets that were concerning himself. And Paul talked about to the Romans how the gospel was promised beforehand in his holy pro- through his prophets and holy scriptures. Paul told the Galatians that the gospel was preached beforehand in the, in the Old Testament. So uh, Jesus is the focal point of everything. So we don't want to open up Haggai and just understand Haggai for Haggai's sake or the historical setting of that day and time. We do want to understand that. But how does, how does Haggai move us closer and closer to Jesus and the gospel? That's, that's, uh, that's what we want to do um and why did god do it this way why did he not just why did why did he give us these incremental steps leading up so so that so that the people would recognize him when he came and be without excuse if they didn't and so we even today we have the whole completed story we have we have the both the promise and the fulfillment we have the foreshadowing and the and 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 the the real thing the substance we have the type and the anti-type so that so that uh, it, it creates in us and it gives us greater confidence in the, the trustworthiness and the truthfulness of God when we come to this and we see that uh, the fact that not just that we have the promise and the fulfillment, that all this wasn't revealed at the same time. It was, it was revealed incrementally over 1,500 years to almost 40 different men in different cultures. And it tells one story. So uh, it's, an, it's a good story. So for all those reasons... Uh, and very intentionally we've mentioned this again and again our aim today is not just to think about Haggai but very specifically the gospel according to Haggai and in that process we'll learn a bit about him and the time in which he lived but above all how he points us forward to Christ so having said all that we're not going to read the whole book up front like we did at Obadiah last week I hope to read it piece by piece as we move through it but let me let me just tell you how I plan to take us through it and then we'll we'll pray and dig in so first i want to think as we typically do about the setting of the book um, what was going on at the time that haggai was prophesying these words when did all this happen where did it happen what's going on behind it and to see some of this setting and background we'll dip back into the book of ezra um, and uh haggai's actually mentioned twice in ezra so we'll see the surrounding events. That'll, Always try to do that kind of digging. What's the background here? That'll help you understand what's being said in these prophets. Secondly, I want us to think about the stirring that took place. Stirring is a very specific word in Haggai. Uh, It's an important word used here for what God was doing here. It's also a word that's used prominently in Ezra. God was stirring them to do something. What was that and why? And then finally, we'll see, not surprisingly, the salvation that God was promising to bring about there's a major aspect of this book. There's only two chapters, but there's two uh, two important passages in the second chapter that inch us closer to Jesus and what he was coming to do. So that's what we're going to do and how we plan to move through it, but let's pray and ask God's help before we dig into his word. Father, we um, we haven't read this book yet, but we confess at the outset that here we, we're here and I'm I'm standing before this group of people with this Bible open. We all are here, each with our copy of your word open. So we, our very presence here and, and I, the very way we're situated in this room is a testimony to what we believe about the scriptures. This is your word, and it's worthy of us taking time out of our day and coming and opening it and spending a fair amount of time thinking about what you have said in it. We understand that what we're going to read is your holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, clear, sufficient, and necessary word. So, Father, I pray and I ask that as we read it, as we study it, as we think about it, give us eyes to see the truth. Give us minds to understand the truth. Give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we see here because apart from your Holy Spirit, we might understand the sentences we might understand the story but there won't be any love for it in our hearts apart from your holy spirit so give us hearts to embrace and love the truth that we come across in these pages give us wills to obey whatever it may lead us to do and i ask it in jesus name amen all right uh, so let's dive in and think first about the setting of haggai so it's it's kind of a breath of fresh air I forgot to tell you ahead of time uh, last week that we're going to be in Haggai this week, so hopefully some of you maybe guessed it and read it ahead of time. And if you did, you'll know that it's kind of a a breath of fresh air after last week in Obadiah to open up to Haggai and find specifics. (laughs) Um, Look at verse verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak the high priest. Names and times. Lovely. Um, but who were these people, and, and, and uh, when was all of this happening? Well, we can actually get probably more exact than we've gotten at any point in this whole summer in these, in these minor prophets, because Haggai doesn't just give us names to give us a rough estimate about when he might have been writing this. He gets us to the very day. That the word of the Lord came to him. He says, he, and for, let's just pick it apart. He says, he was writing in the second year of Darius the king. Let's just take that. Second year of Darius the king, who was he? If you remember last week in Obadiah, Obadiah was riding against the Edomites, right? And casting judgment on the Edomites. Why? Because the Edomites had given aid to the Babylonians when the Babylonians came through to take Judah captive and carry them off into exile. Edom, a neighboring territory helped the Babylonians do that. And so God, through Obadiah, was delivering a judgment against the Babylonians, I mean, well, Babylonians and against Edom, uh, for that act. But that tells you that Obadiah is writing just after they were carried off into exile in Babylon. You come across here and you see Darius the king, you know you have moved ahead a few decades. Now, this is a few decades after, uh, after what we read about in Obadiah because uh, Judah did go off into exile and live under Babylonian rule, m- under Nebuchadnezzar and, and other kings, Babylonian kings after him, and they were under that rule for several decades until another powerful nation took over the Babylonians, namely the Medes and the Persians. And the first of those kings was King Cyrus in 559 B.C., if you're a, a date keeper. And he's an important character. Remember him. Cyrus, the king of Persia. Cyrus was actually prophesied by name before he was born in Isaiah 45. Crazy, right? Well, when Cyrus came to power and the Persians came to power, they had a completely different governing philosophy than did the Babylonians. Babylonians came and they conquered a people. And the Babylonians came, they, they, con- they, they destroyed Solomon's temple, they destroyed the city, they conquered the people, they carried off the people, they spread the people all over their empire. Why? so that nobody could speak the same language as their neighbor, and they could gather together and rise up in rebellion. That's why they would do that. Persians came to power, and they had a different governing philosophy altogether. Um, they thought the people will love us if we're nice to them. And so they, Cyrus, that first king in 559, made a proclamation. Jews, you can, you can go home, right? And you can rebuild your city. You can rebuild the temple. And that, became, that, that started happening. It happened in stages, but it began happening under Cyrus's reign, and it continued until he died. And we'll think about a couple of the Persian kings that came after Cyrus in a little while, but for our purposes here, this is the second year of Darius the king. Darius is one of those Persian kings. He was three kings later. He was three kings after Cyrus um, in Persia. He became king in 522. So Cyrus was 559. We're a few years after that five twenty two is Darius, and Haggai begins saying he's writing in the second year of Darius the king For, let's, another angle to see this he's writing to the Jews and this is it opens with these words: Darius is the king so this is another stark reminder that there's not a Davidic king on the throne it's not one of god's uh davidic kings it's a it's a pagan king who's on the throne um pagan king of the Medes and the Persians but God will still use him to do his will and and we'll see that in a good way but Haggai's even more specific it's not not just the second year which would be 520 bc but he says in the sixth month on the first day of the month do a little figuring and, and comparing that their calendar to our current cal- calendar it was August the 29th it was August the 29th 520 bc that's when this happened so we're, we're, that's pretty specific. That's, that's who Darius is. He's a pagan king. He's Persian, Medes and the Persians. Uh, and he's, and this, this prophecy is happening in 520 B.C. in late summer, specifically August the 29th. But who are these other two guys mentioned? Zerubbabel and Joshua. Well, Joshua was the high priest in Jerusalem at the time. And Zerub, Zerubbabel, that's hard to say, Zerubbabel was... The governor of the territory. He was the governor over that region, Jerusalem and the surrounding territory. And he's a little interesting as well. We just tease this out for you just a minute, and we'll get into the meat of the story. But you need to know who the cast of characters are. Um, it says here that Zerubbabel's dad was a guy named Shealtiel. Shealtiel was his father. So what? Well, if you had been a, a careful reader of Biblical genealogies, like we're all prone not to do and not to be, you might recall that in First Chronicles chapter three, there's a a long genealogy of David's King David's descendants, the men who would be you know be this dynasty of kings that God had promised to come from David, right? So his descendants, First uh, Chronicles chapter three, and in verses sixteen and seventeen, here's here's part of that genealogy, the descendants of Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim would have been a descendant of David the descendants of Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, his son, who's also known in Scripture as Jehoiakim, right? Zedekiah, his son, and the sons of Jeconiah, the captive, Shealtiel, his son. So there there you go. Two things. Jeconiah, or Jehoiakim, it says he is the captive. Jeconiah, the captive. What does that mean? It means he was the king in Jerusalem when the Babylonians came and took them captive. Right? He, he was the king when the exile happened. Okay? Well, who was his son? Shealtiel. Meaning, Shealtiel would have been next in line to be king if they had not been carried off into exile. Like if the Babylonians had not come when Jeconiah or Jehoiakim died, his son Shealtiel would have been king of Judah by blood. But into exile they went. And Shealtiel grew old in Babylon. But while he was in exile, he had a son whose name was, and you got it, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel. So now that they're back in Jerusalem, now that Cyrus said you could go home, now that they're back in the land by the gracious uh, decree of Cyrus, Zerubbabel was technically by blood the Davidic king. Were they not still under foreign rule, even though they're living at home? Like, even though uh, Darius is still the king. Well, he's not, Zerubbabel's not the king, but he is the governor. <laughs> he's the governor instead. There's no Davidic king actually on the throne. So, what's going on? Why, why was Haggai prophesying on August the 29th, 520 BC? We'll keep reading verses 2 through 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people, that would be the Jews, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And the word of the Lord came by uh, the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Remember, what did, what did Cyrus say near, nearly 20 years earlier? 20, what did he tell them they could do? He said, you could go back to Jerusalem and you can... Start rebuilding the temple. You can start rebuilding the city. And, 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 and so they went. And they went happily. And they went joyfully. And they began the work enthusiastically. You can imagine. So many years in exile. We can finally go back. And we can rebuild the city. Rebuild the temple. Here's how Ezra describes the scene when they finally got the foundation laid. When they finally laid the foundation of the temple, here's how he describes the scene. This is in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with their trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise to the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. Just imagine if you were there. They, they sang responsively praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And what were they singing? For he is good, for his steadfast love endures toward Israel. What does it sound like? It sounds like Psalm 18, 118. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. It was a good day. It was a good day. And everything was going well. But you keep reading in Ezra. That was Ezra chapter 3. And you keep reading in Ezra. And in chapter 4, there are, as you expected, adversaries to the work and by the time they started their uh adversarial role i mean they they the people had gone back they rebuilt the 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 foundation they had their party by the time these start adversaries rose up cyrus the king was dead the good and gracious king was dead another king was in his place his name was artaxerxes artaxerxes don't name your children artaxerxes either so they, the adversaries, they don't like what the Jews are doing. They don't like that they're rebuilding the city. They don't like that they're rebuilding the temple. So what do they do? They write a letter to the, the new king, Artaxerxes. And in that letter, we don't have time to read it, but in that letter, basically, they start throwing the Jews under the bus. And they basically tell Artaxerxes, I, I know you may not realize what they're doing, but they're rebuilding their, their civilization here. They, they're rebuilding their temple to their god, And if you let them continue and do this, they will not be good subjects. They won't pay tribute to you. They will worship their own gods. They won't worship your gods. They will try to rebel against you like they did all the previous ones. They won't submit to your rule. So Artaxerxes believed them in that letter. In Ezra 4.21, he said, Therefore make a decree that these men be made to cease, and that this city not be rebuilt, until a decree is made by me. All right, just underscore that. This won't be rebuilt. And, the, and, and this, this edict is in force unless he himself takes it back. So the adversaries received that word. And in two verses later, it says they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power made them cease. That's the status quo when Haggai begins. The work of the temple had had stopped. Years had gone by and no work had been done. But Haggai notices that, and God notices that that they certainly had not slowed down building their own houses. And quite nice ones. He says, your paneled houses. And it had been that way for quite some time. Comfortable homes for themselves. Temple in ruins. And notice what they say at the beginning of those verses. They say... The time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. By a technicality, they're telling the truth. Because Artaxerxes had not taken back his command. Right? He said, don't stop the work unless I rescind my order. And he had not rescinded it. So by a technicality, they're right. Time had not yet come. But they had, that, that was all too convenient for them. Right? They had grown quite content with it. They weren't sitting there in angst because they couldn't rebuild the temple. They were quite comfortable in their paneled houses. What did it mean for the temple to lie in ruins? What did it mean? What, what, well, the t- temple served two main purposes. It served as a place where God's presence and His glory was to be physically manifested. And it was also the place where of their sacrifices for sin, right? And they had grown indifferent to both. For the temple to lie in ruins, they had grown indifferent to both. They had grown indifferent uh, to to God's glory in the place. They had grown indifferent to to their own sin. They didn't even feel like they, they had forgotten all about the sacrifices or the need for them. And the word that God was bringing to them, though, was that God had noticed this. And and he's now telling that they 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 were suffering consequences as a result of it. Look at verse six. Now, therefore, uh, uh, excuse me. uh, Yeah 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 yeah. You have sown. You have sown. uh, I was reading verse five. Now you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. And he continues in verses 9 through 11. You looked. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. He's saying, if guys, you live in your paneled houses while the, while the temple lies in ruins. Have you noticed that your crops have been failing? Have you ever wondered why? Have you noticed that it hasn't rained in a long time? Have you ever wondered why? It's because they left the temple in ruins. And they've grown, grown indifferent to the glory of God, and to the, indifferent to their own sin. What a, what a far cry from the shouts of praise at the laying of the foundation of the temple and singing responsively, Psalm 118. And this drought and this agricultural <laughs> curse is, is exactly according to the law in Deuteronomy 11 and Deuteronomy 28. God was judging them for their apathy toward them, And He's calling them to repentance. And, and if only for their own good, for their own blessing, that their crops may grow again. And that the oil and wine may flow again. Return to the Lord and return to the work. But also in verses 7 and 8, He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. Not just for their own good, but for the glory of God. Get back to this work. Come back to the Lord. Return to His work. What do we take away from all this? What, what can we, right now, take away from that? Because that seems like a faraway time and place think about it this way. In the New Testament, Jesus is related to the temple in a couple of ways. One, as both God and man, he is the temple, right? He is the temple. It's it's in John 2 when when he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. And they said, what are you talking about? It took 46 years to build this temple. The temple they're (laughs) trying to rebuild right here took 46 years but it says Jesus was talking about the temple of his own body. So he, he is the temple. But the other way the New Testament talks about Jesus and the temple, it, it describes Jesus as the, the cornerstone of the foundation of the temple, and we are the living stones in the temple, right? Peter calls us living stones in this temple. It's a, in a sense, we, the church, is the, is the temple, right? And Jesus is the chief cornerstone of that temple, right? We're the temple. He's the cornerstone. We're the living stone. So take, take that. Like them in Haggai's day, we are to be about the work of, of building his temple, right? Or giving ourselves to him to build his temple through us. But have we, have we like them grown too comfortable in our paneled houses, Right? Have we grown too comfortable in our own lifestyle of self-interest and comfort and ease and self-glory and self-image that we, ha- we don't have room in our hearts for the love of Christ and the pursuit of His will and the pursuit of His kingdom? The twice-given admonition in, this, in these early verses are applicable to us. Verse 5 says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Verse 7 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. We need to heed that admonition as much as Haggai's generation. We sit in our paneled houses that are a lot nicer than theirs enjoying the comfort while the, the temple lies in ruins or the temple is not yet complete because the Lord hasn't returned. Well, knowing the background and the, and the setting of the book, what was going on behind the scenes, let's think for a minute, about, a minute about the stirring. How did the people respond to this message preached on August the 29th? 23 days later, in September, they repented. They repented. Three and a half weeks later, it says in verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, And Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. And the words of Haggai the prophet, and as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. I think it's noteworthy that there that twice the Lord is referred to as the Lord their God. The Lord their God, because that's that's the first time in, in this book, that they he's been referred to that way. He's been referred to up to this point as the Lord or as the Lord of hosts. And he'll be referred to as the Lord of hosts over and over again in this book. But here, he's the Lord their God. He's the Lord of the... He's the he, he, and, and, and he's described as the Lord of hosts, but in emphasizes his sovereignty, his lordship, but now that they repented and returned to him, he is as that sovereign Lord, he is their God. And what Haggai... Uh, said here, would have astonished them. Verse 13 says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. The same Lord who had called for the drought on the land because of the rebellion, that same Lord is with them now as their God. Now, just note, note, and note this in your own life. When they heard those words... Imagine they heard them audibly out of Haggai's mouth. As they heard those words, the Lord saying, I am with you. As they looked around, it didn't appear that way. There are still no crops on the ground. It was something they were going to have to believe by faith. Believe God. Believe his word. And they immediately began to see that the Lord was with them. Maybe not as they expected. But in unmistakable ways. They, he, would show, he would show them that he was with them. And they were his people. Look at verse 14. The Lord stirred up the spirit. Uh, I don't have verse 14 on the screen. And the Lord stirred up the son, the son of, uh, the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah. And the spirit of Joshua and the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. And they and stirred up the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord their God. I love that phrase again. The Lord of hosts, their God. <laughs> but the Lord stirred up each of their hearts, each by name, to get on with the work and the rebuilding of the temple. It's not the first time He had done that. In fact, the, the, very, the very first decree... By King Cyrus, saying that the Jews could go home, happened because God stirred up Cyrus's heart. Um, Ezra 1 1 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah the prophet might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he also put it in writing. He stirred up Cyrus's heart to make that proclamation to go home and rebuild. And it later says that the, the, he stirred up the, all the hearts of that original remnant that went back, that rejoiced on that day that they finished the, the foundation. Proverbs 21, one says, The king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. By the way, that's why you pray for people. If, if you really want to know what somebody believes, listen to them pray. And when people pray for somebody to be saved, they pray, you can tell, they believe, Proverbs 21.1, that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will, that the Lord can change a person's heart. He's sovereign over hearts. Even the fact that in Haggai they came 23 days later in repentance. Scripture tells us elsewhere that 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 was the gift of God's sovereignty over their hearts. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.25 about Timothy's enemies. God may perhaps grant them. Timothy, God may perhaps grant your enemies repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. He may grant them repentance. God is sovereign over hearts. So he didn't just stir them up. He stirred them up and brought them to repentance to to do what he had called them to do. He stirred up Cyrus to, to make this proclamation and when he stirred up the hearts of the people to get back to work, um, he was demonstrating that he was sovereign over this whole thing, and he was with them just like he told them. Don't miss this point, though, because this is important just for us coming up. When it said that the Lord stirred up the heart of King Cyrus to make a proclamation that the Jews could go home, it says he, he, the Lord stirred him up to make a proclamation, and he put it in writing. He put it in writing. Just tuck that away. Um, and don't forget that little tidbit that's the the other uh, clear sign that God was working for them in this story Um, let's let's get there now so the Lord stirred them up and they start rebuilding the temple again let me ask you have we seen that Artaxerxes the one who said stop the work stop rebuilding the city and, and this is the rule until I take it back have we seen did he ever take it back No. When Artaxerxes said stop building, he had not taken that back. So technically, the law of the land was don't build. Well, then the Lord stirred up their heart, and now they're building again, technically against the law. All right? Well, you remember how the first time they were building and rejoicing, the adversaries came and put a stop to it, and they wrote a letter to the king? Artaxerxes, who made them stop. Well, now that they restarted the work again, new adversaries, same old trick. They started working, and these new adversaries came and were going to appeal to Darius. We read in Ezra chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. At the same time, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar Bozani and their associates came to them and spoke to them thus. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? They also asked him, what are your names? (laughs) I probably would have wet my pants. You know that had to just be a little bit scary. Who told you you could do this? What are your names? Well, knees knocking, I'm sure they said, uh, Cyrus told us we could. When Cyrus was king, he, he had made a proclamation that we could come back and rebuild this place. These, these adversaries were probably thinking, yeah, but Artaxerxes said no. But Cyrus told us we could come back. And they basically said, well, we'll, we'll see. We'll write a letter to Darius, and we'll see, I've got your names and what you did. And we'll write, and we'll say, if you can find this proclamation of Cyrus, just let us know. Well, don't forget that God had told the Jews that and through Haggai, I'm with you, I'm with you." And in fact, Ezra said the same thing. He says, "The eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. God's with them. So they write Darius the letter. It's good. They write Darius the letter. Could you look for that letter or that proclamation from Cyrus? Let us know if you find it. Well, Cyrus had put it in writing. Remember? And Darius found it. And so Darius, the pagan king, wrote them a letter. I love it. It's not going to be on the screen. Just get your Bible and open to Ezra chapter 6. Ezra chapter 6. This is awesome. Maybe I get a little too giddy about it. Ezra chapter 6. So go left a little bit. Ezra chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 6 and read through verse 12. This is his letter. Now, therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, and Shathar Boz and I and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews, that be Zerubbabel, and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on this site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews. You're not just going to leave them alone. I'm about to give you stuff to do. The cost is to be paid to these men. In full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. In other words, you're going to pay for it. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep or burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given them day by day without fail. That they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. And I also make a decree. This is the best part to me. That if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house and he shall be impaled on it. And his house shall be made a (laughs) dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there Throw any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make this decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Sign, Darius, hugs and kisses. I am with you, declares the Lord. He stirs hearts. A stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And again, I mentioned it earlier. In John 2, when Jesus said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days, they're like, it took 46 years. It took 46 years to build that temple. And Tat and I and his boys paid for all of it. And day by day for 46 years brought oil and wine and animals to sacrifice. Man. The work was finished because the Lord moved to them to do it why what was different about the first set of enemies who talked to Artaxerxes and the second set of enemies who talked to Darius one put the work to a stop one said you're going to pay for it the Lord was with him he stirred them up well one last thing you go back to Haggai one last thing before we close up shop on Haggai and that is, how do we see the coming salvation in uh, in this book? How do, we come, how do we see the coming of Christ here? I want us to see this quickly. I don't, want us to, I don't want us to miss it. Look at what he says in chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. For thus says the Lord of hosts, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. So right there, God is telling them that even the rebuilding of this temple that would take 46 years, and even though He's with them and He's already doing remarkable things to demonstrate that He's with them, He's saying, that, that's not an end in itself. Like that, This is pointing to something even better coming. He says the latter glory will be greater than the former. He's not talking about this temple's going to be more glorious than Solomon's. That's not what he's saying. No, he's talking about something a lot greater than that. Jesus said something greater than Solomon is here. Something that will affect all nations. I will, I will shake all nations. All the nations will bring uh, their glory into my house. What is that talking about? Well. That's talking about the second coming of Christ. Because Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, quotes this passage. Hebrews chapter 12 quotes Haggai chapter 2, verses 6, 7. And and, and it talks about the second coming, when there's not going to be a physical temple. But the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. And His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom. But how do we know that this passage is pointing specifically to Christ and not just the last day you know of judgment like I said Hebrews picks it up and says what it does but even if that's all we had and it, that would be enough but there's a second passage at the end of the book that that's points us forward to Christ that's the last three verses 20 to 23 the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month by the way this is the twenty-fourth day. Of the ninth month, that'd be December the 18th of 520. All of this took place between August 29th and December the 18th, right? 520. What does he say? Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of the kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the, the chariots and their riders and the horses. And their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. So he reiterates again that there's a day that's coming where he's going to rule all nations, right? how and through whom would that happen well at the end of the book he zooms in on Zerubbabel uh and 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 remember Zerubbabel is is a descendant of David and he and 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 he's saying that there would be a uh and he would be the king if they weren't a weren't a a, a people but God is saying he's chosen him Zerubbabel and will make him like a signet ring he says That is saying that God is going to restore a Davidic king uh, to the throne through Zerubbabel. Would it be Zerubbabel? Is he telling Zerubbabel, you are going to be king one day? No, because he never would. Zerubbabel would die, never having taken the throne that by blood was his. But it would be one of his descendants. Who would that be? another descendant of David, through his rule, Jesus Christ, right? You don't get past the first page of the New Testament, and you find the genealogy of Jesus that, to our shame, we don't read genealogies very carefully. And in this genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in Matthew 1, right there in verse 12, And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel and on and on and on until you come to Jesus Christ who was born the king in the line of Zerubbabel who was in the line of David. And only he could fulfill the rule of all nations prophesied in Haggai at his resurrection. At his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And he's building his kingdom. He's building his church. He's building his temple now. And there is a day where he will come again. And as Psalm 2 puts it, he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. He only is the king of kings and lord of lords. To whom one day all authority will be displayed for all to see. And that's the gospel according to Haggai.